Thank you for connecting to the Bethany Chapel Sermon Link. Our prayer is that you will find the following sermon helpful and inspiring for your spiritual journey. If you are a visitor to this resource, or if you've not attended our church, we would love to meet you in person. Our vision at Bethany Chapel is opening doors to God's truth and love. God bless you as you listen. Today I want to continue in our series AD 30, which is basically a chronological walk through uh, the life of Christ, and uh, talking about something that really is relevant to all of us when we're part of a church and when we're trying to influence people with the gospel and, and even understanding our own faith, when religion is only rules. I came from a strict religious home. We were more religious than God. We had it bad. Now, I lived about one half mile from our church, and our church was our life. I remember actually when we were building that church, uh, and it was two levels, a small building. I remember standing on the top of the first level, nailing down the floorboards, floorboards you know, using the chalk line and everything, probably putting a few nails in crooked. But I remember actually building that church as a young boy. And we were there constantly. Sunday school every Sunday. Sunday worship. So we had the hour before church, and then we had the hour of church. Then we came back Sunday night. No matter how good the fishing would have been, right in front of our house, grew up on a lake. We were there Sunday night. We were there for Wednesday night prayer meeting. I remember being in the pastor's office, kneeling with all those men every Wednesday night. And then we started a Christian school So I was there five days a week plus Sunday. We lived in that church. I was there six of seven days a week. I learned about God there. I used to sing on the stage with a short gal. She was four, ten and a half. Her name was Kim. I was about six, three, and we used to do duets in that church. All of that was good. But that wasn't good enough for our family vacations. We went to Jesus camp. Camp Chatech in northern Wisconsin, and, and we spent time in church there. Most of us did, though I think my dad used to skip out of the evening sessions to go try to win the fishing contest. Now I always wondered if that was okay to catch the biggest fish of the week while you weren't in church. But it wasn't, it wasn't the second coming of the Garden of Eden, because we had rules for everything. We took God's top 10 We took God's top 10 and we multiplied them like Jesus multiplied the loaves and fishes. We turned it into the top 20,000. We eliminated all of the gray areas of life. Everything was black and white. Even where the Bible was gray, it wasn't gray for us. We had a dress code for girls that made a lot of girls resent the X chromosome. It wasn't until I was 12 years old I knew that girls had skin, Christian girls. I never saw my mother in pants, ever. She was born and died in a knee-length dress. Men couldn't have facial hair at all because it was some sort of response to the 60s when, of course, the hippies did, and so we made the Amish look like crazy worldly liberals. There were no drums on our stage because we were told that the drum beat in contemporary Christian music was the same drum beat from devil worship in Africa. That's what we were told. And evidently some missionary vouched for that and after that every church like ours believed it. 
So we didn't have drums on our stage, no guitars. We never touched alcohol unless we skinned our knees. We didn't have cooking sherry in our house. That was too close to the edge. We didn't have rum in our chocolates. There were no toasts at weddings with champagne. And no, just in case you're wondering, Jesus did not turn water into wine. He turned it into Welch's grape juice. Because the same Greek word would be used of both. We didn't go to theaters because you never knew what somebody might think you were watching there. We didn't dance, not even line dancing. To this day, if I dance, it's a sin for different reasons, but. We didn't play face cards with face cards because evidently the derivation of those cards had some sacrilegious origins against the Trinity and so we couldn't use them, so we played Rook. We invented our own cards. We were one church business meeting away from outlawing fun based on Second Limitations 5.23. We were Christians, but interestingly, with all of those rules, we didn't talk a lot about Jesus. We didn't talk a lot about grace. But what's interesting about that, and you'll find it in the passage we look at today, the rules didn't keep us from being human. The rules didn't keep us from being sinful. The rules didn't protect us from ourselves like they're supposed to. One of my friends in high school, I played high school basketball with him, he's a little older than I am. He went to a Christian college and got his girlfriend pregnant during Christian college, and interestingly, they were training to be missionaries, and in our culture, it doesn't matter. You make a mistake like that, you're sort of done for life, sadly. So they were off the missions track. A couple of my other friends had pretty significant pornography collections, and that was back when pornography was on tablets. I personally was full of anger and rage, plus a few other things which you don't really need to know about me. I believe another friend of mine had access to weed before that was easy to access. And most of us went to church school. Seven days a week we were at that church, or six days a week, and if we weren't, the friend who had access to weed, he went to our church. See, the rules were not enough to change our hearts. No matter what was applied externally, no matter how much we ramped up all of those rules, no matter how many gray areas we eliminated or minimized, no, how much, no matter how much scripture twisting we did in our little legalistic church, and we did, we knew how to twist the scriptures like no other. No matter how much we did that, we couldn't solve the human condition because that human condition resides in our hearts. The good news is, I still found Jesus in that religious maze. The bad news is, many don't. Or they get a misrepresentation of our faith to the point that they walk away. So how do we make sure we don't repeat that kind of culture and have a true brand of faith and Christianity in our lives? Well, Jesus walked into that kind of a cultural situation, the kind I described. The people of Jesus' day were more conservative than God. And he was God, and he called him out on it. 
And I want you to turn to Mark chapter 7. We're going to read a passage about this. Mark chapter 7 is on page 32 of your New Testament. So about two-thirds of the way through the Bible, your New Testament begins with page 1 again. Get to Mark, verse, uh, page 32, uh, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 7. So Mark 7, 1. The Pharisees and some of the scribes or teachers of the law gathered around him when they had come from Jerusalem and it seemed that some of his disciples were eating their bread with impure hands, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands, thus observing the tradition of the elders. Now remember those words, the tradition of the elders. Those are key technical words here. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they cleanse themselves. And there are many other things which they've received in order to observe, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and copper pots. The Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to, again, here you see the phrase, the tradition of the elders, but eat their bread with impure hands? And he said to them, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. He was also saying to them, you are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition." For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, if a man says to his father or his mother, whatever I have that would help you is korban, that is to say, a gift to God, you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or his mother, thus invalidating the word of God by your tradition, which you've handed down, and you do many things such as that. After he called the crowd to him again, he began saying to them, Listen to me, all of you, and understand. So he started out with you know, this debate with the Pharisees. Now he's got a crowd together. He wants to continue to develop this theological uh, trend. He says, listen to me, all of you, and understand there's nothing outside the man which can defile him if it goes into him. But the things which proceed out of the man are what defile the man. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. When he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples questioned him about the parable. And he said to them, are you so lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him? Because it goes down, it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach and is eliminated. Thus he declared all foods clean. And he was saying, that which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. For what, from within, out of the heart of man, proceed the evil thoughts, fornication, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. So I want to just develop three thoughts from this text and then a couple applications. First, when religion is only rules, and this is the primary point that Jesus is making as he talks about the heart. When religion is only rules, it underestimates the problem with the human condition. Now, again, this is addressed mostly at the end of this passage when Jesus gets to the true source of uncleanness, and that's within us. It's our human hearts, but we're going to start there because it's the primary point that Jesus is making. It's the primary issue between him and the Pharisees, how they basically viewed human nature, how lost we really are. And this passage only makes sense if you understand a little bit about 
ancient Hebrew culture and then the Jewish culture of Jesus' day, sort of the New Testament Jewish culture. So a little context here. This is taking place in Galilee, the northern part of where Jesus ministered, where he spent most of his time. Nazareth is in Galilee. But news has spread about Jesus. And so at the beginning of this passage, you see that this may be taking place in Galilee, but Jesus has received a religious entourage that is not from Galilee. That religious entourage is from Jerusalem. And they basically are the opposition party. They're coming to check him out. They're sort of the orthodoxy police. And it's this group of people, ultimately, that are the group of people motivated to go to Rome and have Jesus put to death. So it's that group just earlier in Jesus' ministry. Now, they include the Pharisees and a group of people called scribes. Scribes would have been like Old Testament lawyers. Now, in the Old Testament, both your religious and your civil code is included in the law. So they didn't have secular lawyers. Their lawyers were both religious and civil. They were all connected to interpreting Old Testament law. The Pharisees were basically, I would call them sort of a middle-class merchant group of dudes that were very devout Jews. And there were only about 10,000 of them. You'd think that was all the churches were full of Pharisees. Well, there weren't that many of them. There were about 10,000, but they were highly respected. And they were what you would call separatists. They sort of kept themselves away from everyone else. They tried to do business with just themselves. And and they really thought they were better than everyone else. And as a matter of fact, other than their self-righteousness, they kind of were better than everybody else because they tried to keep all these rules that were made up and added to but they, they, they were separatists. They believed as they got everybody to keep God's rules that God's kingdom would come back to Israel again and they'd have their independence from Rome. So they were sort of politically motivated to obey God and bring his blessing back to Israel. So the scribes or the teachers of the law created rules that the Pharisees kept. These groups observed that Jesus' disciples didn't follow these extra rules. These extra rules were called the tradition of the elders. So what's that? Well, many centuries prior to this, when the Jews had been in captivity and then some had come back from captivity, they tried to figure out how they could get their nation to really obey God's laws. And so they took every one of God's actual rules and they multiplied it. They began to define obedience in great detail for every area of conduct. So they took the 10 commandments and they turned them into the 20,000 commandments. And that's actually probably not an exaggeration. And the rabbis would debate every one of God's actual rules. They would come up with applications. They would memorize all the debates between various schools of rabbis and created what was a massive oral tradition or the tradition of the elders. Eventually, that tradition was written down in about AD 200. It's called the Mishnah, which you could read today. Here's the problem, and here's the problem for you and I in any church. It had the same authority in the minds of those Pharisees as the Bible did. They didn't look at their Old Testament and think, well, that's really God talking, and this oral tradition, tradition of the elders, isn't. They viewed it as having similar or almost equal authority as clear Old Testament commands. And in this tradition, There was a massive section on what made one clean or unclean. Now, this concept wasn't new. The Old Testament, if you go back to Leviticus, or as I like to say, Leviticus, evidently, Leviticus, 
You can find sections about being clean or unclean. And, and a lot of the reasons that took place is when you think about the children of Israel out in the wilderness by themselves, there were still a couple million of them. And so there were rules about what would make you clean or unclean. And a lot of them had to do with public health, like don't touch a dead corpse and then come into the camp. Uh, rules about infections, rules about sores, Rules for women during their cycle, rules about bleeding, rules that protected the nation as it relates to public health. So there was this view of clean and unclean, and it had to do, really, a lot of it, public health and sanitation, because you got a group of a couple million people wandering around in a hot desert together. So there was always this clean and unclean concept in Jewish religious culture. But the rabbis of Jesus' day had taken that clean and unclean concept to a whole new level. So they had special like hand washing rules. You had to wash your hands one way, letting the, the water run down, then you had to wash them again, letting the water run this way. There was a rule for how much water you had to use. You know, if you touched the wrong kind of people, which would include you know, anyone who wasn't Jewish, so a Gentile, that would make you unclean. Just like if you, you know, moved a dead raccoon off the road, that would make you unclean. So all kinds of things made you unclean. You had to go through these ritual cleansings in order to be able to go to synagogue again. And if you didn't wash your hands right, the right way, and that's what you see in this passage, the food you ate with your unclean hands would then make you unclean on the inside. I know how ridiculous this sounds, but that was religion to them. That was like being right with God to them. You eat this unclean food because you have unwashed hands, now you are unclean. You're unclean before God. So the old public health rules became the new righteousness. That was being right with God. And as ridiculous as this sounds to us, a couple of thousand years later, it was a big deal to them. This was their religion. It was about national righteousness. So Jesus is debating that issue. And when Jesus concludes on this issue at the end of the passage, he's making the bigger point that nobody is unclean based on food that comes into your body because you had dirty hands. That just goes right through us. He says our uncleanness the real problem with us that affects our relationship with God comes from what's on the inside in the first place. He said, we have unclean hearts. He says, every evil thing does not come into us because we didn't wash our hands before we ate, but it comes out of us because we have a wrong heart condition in the first place. That's why he says to his disciples when they question this, so he's kind of lit up the Pharisees and the teachers of the law a little bit. The disciples had a great respect for the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. So they're kind of thinking, well, wait a minute, Jesus, you're critiquing them, but, but we've learned from them. They, they, they operate in all of our synagogues. They're the ones who have the religious scrolls. Those are our teachers. So Jesus says to his own disciples, are you so lacking in understanding also? Jesus is sort of breaking the credibility of these Pharisees and scribes. Don't you understand that whatever goes into the man from outside can't defile him because it doesn't go into his heart. It goes through his stomach. In other words, it bypasses the moral part of man. That which proceeds out of the man 
That's what defiles the man. For from within, out of our hearts, proceed sin. So the bigger picture is they underestimated the problem with the human condition. They're focused on clean hands. They're not focused on a toxic heart. And that's kind of the problem with every religious system that's focused on keeping rules as the way to be right with God. Because it sort of assumes we must not be really that lost. We, we really must not have that much to be rescued from. We, we can't be that bad after all. But the problem is we need absolute transformation, not a little reformation. The problem is too deep for rules. Jesus came to save us. Jesus means Savior. The word means Savior. And that crowd of people never felt their need. And so when Jesus dissed their traditions, they killed him for it, eventually, because they were invested in this. It was their religion. When religion is only rules, it underestimates the problem with the human condition. Second, when religion is only rules, and this is really relevant to us, sometimes it displaces the actual commands, the actual heart of God. And I'm going to give you some examples of that that are a little more modern than what Jesus talked about. But I'm going to first tell you what Jesus was saying here. In the middle of this discourse, Jesus attacks what often happens in religious cultures, in, religious, in churches, in denominations, in people. Because when we create rules that go beyond God's word, and many of you came from backgrounds probably similar to mine, where we took the Bible and we started twisting it to the point where we added a lot of things that were not really intended by God, when we do that, sometimes we end up breaking God's word somewhere else as a result because we come so extreme with something God never intended to be interpreted the way we do. Now I'm going to give you Jesus' example. He said to them, you're experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. Moses said, honor your father and your mother. He who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. I would have been in big, big, big trouble as a kid. But you say, if a man says to his father or mother, whatever I have that would help you is Corban, you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother. Thus you're invalidating the word of God by your tradition, which you've handed down and you do a lot of things like that. So what is he talking about? And you saw that word korban there, which is a Hebrew word. So korban means a gift to or devoted to God. And here's what happened. A practice had developed whereby the Pharisees were using their traditions, their rules, to intentionally violate God's rule in another area. And, and you saw these two quotes, so let me tell you what's going on. He's referencing their korban practices, and here's what you would do. So let's say you're, you're, you're a family, and you've accumulated some assets, and you're a Pharisee, and you believe in these tradition of the elders. So you accumulate assets, and, and you're a wealthy Pharisee. I mean, you've got, you've got $2 million in the bank. You've got a pretty significant asset base. You're worth $2 million. And your mom and dad are becoming sort of destitute. And it looks like because of, I'm going to take us down to the States here, because in Canada with the free healthcare, this is not going to work as well, which I love, by the way. I love Canada's healthcare system. But anyway, 
So you're down in the States and you don't have free health care, you're in big trouble because you're going to be paying for some of this on your own. And mom and dad aren't doing well, they're going to need nursing care and they need really good nursing care, so you're going to deplete all your assets if you take care of them. So what's going to happen here is you've accumulated $2 million, you dedicate it to God, you set up a trust, and God is the beneficiary of your trust. Well, now that you've dedicated it to God, you can live off some of those assets yourself because it's your trust. But guess what? Those assets are now off limit for mom and dad because they're dedicated to God. You can't make this stuff up. That was what they did. They had a rule. If you dedicate money to God, even though you still have it, now it's not available for common use. So these Pharisees would literally take this, you know, sort of this way out and they would violate the command then about caring for mom and dad, about caring for your parents. So Jesus references, we've got a couple of commands about taking care of mom and dad. Honor your father and mother. Don't speak evil of them. But he said, you've got a way of hiding assets and letting mom and dad starve and go out in the street and you do it all in the name of God. They figured out a way to cut off their parental responsibility under the guise of devotion to God and they're absolutely, as a result of that, disobeying God in another area. And so Jesus says, you're hypocrites. You're play actors. You're acting like you're religious. You're acting like you're committed to God. But you're not. You're completely violating God's standards over here because of it. And he quotes Isaiah on the same type of issue going on in Isaiah's day. He says, this isn't new. We've always had ways of looking spiritual while ignoring God. So I think there's two primary ways we do this. One of them is we use one command to sort of cancel out another, which you can't do, but we do it. Let me give you a good example of this from my background. Romans 12, chapter two. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Okay, well, again, I come from the church that was much more conservative than God. Remember, I never saw my mom in, in pants. I mean, we were more conservative than God. We had rules for everything. We didn't wanna be worldly. So we had all of these rules to keep us from being worldly which meant we became like the Pharisees. We became separatists. We didn't want to be around people. We didn't want our kids around people that would potentially influence them in a negative way, and I understand that as parents. I get that. But the reality is we didn't spend our time around people who needed Jesus because they might sort of contaminate us, just like the people of Jesus' day. We don't want to be around those other people because we don't want to be like them. They're going to make us unclean. Well, we did that in our little church too. We didn't have connections with the unbelieving world because we were in our little holy huddle. All right, is this starting to get a little more familiar? We're in our little holy huddle, so we're separated from the world. We basically were the Pharisees, and eventually I figured that out and walked away. We were the Pharisees, but here's the problem. When churches become holy huddles like that, and we think we're doing it to honor God, we're not gonna be contaminated by the world because, boy, we, we gotta be careful with that, so we're not gonna have unsafe friends, we're gonna have all our kids isolated, they're gonna be homeschooled or in Christian school, and that is not a knock on homeschooling or Christian schools. I went to a Christian school. But we need to watch how much we decide we're gonna remove ourselves from the world entirely because by doing that, eventually we're no longer able to obey Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Go into all the world and teach, preach the gospel and, and reach people, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. 
making disciples of all people. See, we would take one part of God's word and we emphasized it to the point where we were massively disobedient to another part of God's word. Now, we cared about lost people, but if they visited our church one day, they would recognize, oh my goodness, if you're a woman, gotta wear one of those knee-length dresses, can't wear pants, you can figure that out real quick. If you're a dude and you don't look like everyone else, you don't fit in. So you got saved that day or you walked away and never came back. That's where one command becomes a cancellation of others. And Christians are notorious for this. Or we elevate a minor command above a major command. Remember in the Old Testament when when God would sort of get sick of people who would participate in every little element of the sacrificial system but they wouldn't do the basic good things he asked them to do and he would say something like, I desire mercy not sacrifice. His point was, we take our little religious rules, we, you know, we go to church, we're all buttoned up, we're keeping all sorts of little rules, but we ignore the giant ones. I'll give you an example. At the risk of not seeing you next week. All right, so Christians don't agree about what, like what's inappropriate language. Would you agree with that? All right, there's a lot of, I can tell you it's different to here in the States and it's different church to church, it's different Christian to Christian, okay? So I probably have a few words in my vocabulary that you wouldn't expect. I'm extremely careful with God's name. I don't like using the words dang or darn because they come from the word damn, which has to do with damnation, which is theological terms. So I'm very careful with God's name. I don't say G's and Jiminy crickets, because that's actually another form of Jesus Christ, believe it or not. All these sort of words that have those kind of derivations. I'm very careful with that. And I taught my kids to be careful with that. But I have other words that you, you might feel would make me comfortable on a Navy ship. You know, I, I'm, in those words, I'll throw out once in a while... And I'm not that worried about it. I'm very careful with the Lord's name, which is actually swearing, but I'm a little more colorful in other areas. But here's the problem. I guarantee you, there are Christians, possibly here, possibly here, who if you heard me use one of those words, you'd be like, oh, that Pastor Paul, he is so inappropriate. And that would be such a big deal to you. But you don't care about your lost neighbor you've known for 30 years across the street. That's where we take the minor things and we make them a much bigger deal than the greater issues as it relates to the heart of God. Whenever Christians set aside major commands of scripture and we just focus on the little things, the little rules, something's wrong. Third, when religion is only rules, it usually reflects self-righteousness and the impossible path to salvation and heaven. Now, this is not mentioned here, but it undergirds all of these passages because Jesus doesn't get to that in this discussion. He does allude to it because the heart is the problem, therefore we really need salvation, but he doesn't talk about salvation in this passage. Most major religions emphasize works as the path to heaven. Even parts of Christianity do it. If you talk to 100 people, who would claim they're under the Christian umbrella, and you ask this question, this diagnostic question to all of them, why do you think you're getting into heaven? I am telling you that even people who consider themselves Christians, a good percentage of them are gonna say, because I'm a good person. 
I mean a good percentage, a high percentage, and that's just the wrong answer. It's the norm for people to believe the path to heaven is because they are good. It's the norm, not the exception. But the Bible says it's an impossible task. Romans 3, 19 and 20, Paul talks about this. Nobody's gonna be declared righteous by God because they kept God's word, they kept the rules, they kept the laws. He said, rather through the law we become conscious of our sin. The law was there to help show how far we missed it, not to get us there. James 2.10, you keep all of God's laws, offend in one point, make one mistake, you're a lawbreaker. There are no perfect people. I was a lawbreaker before I got out of my mother's womb, I guarantee it. And I didn't change a lot for a long time. We're all rule breakers. And it doesn't take a lot of rules, it takes one. There's no works path to heaven. Our hope can never be in self. There's no savior there, there's no atonement there. Only guilt looking for atonement. And when religion is only rules, it usually reflects a belief that we are either saved by our own goodness or we're sanctified by keeping a few rules. All right, I wanna wrap up with a few applications. First, when religion is only rules, as long as there is God, there are rules, there are ethics, there are morals. Jesus was not what we would call theologically an antinomian. Antinomianism was something that happened in the early church because the apostle Paul and others started saying, hey, we're not under the Old Testament law because Gentiles are coming into the church. If you're not Jewish, you're a Gentile. I don't know what I am, I'm like 132nd Jewish, so that makes me 3132nd Gentile. The bottom line is, if you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile, and the Gentiles were not a part of the Jewish nation, so in the Old Testament, you know, you were the, the people of God, it was the Jewish nation, and the people learning about the true God. In the New Testament, the gospel's going to the ends of the earth to all kinds of people, and Paul and others began to recognize they don't have to be Jews to be Christian which is why there was a big debate about circumcision. Gentiles did not have to be circumcised, which was a Jewish tradition, in order to be followers of Jesus. But when that happened, and the apostles explained that, people started saying, well, we're not under the Old Testament, then we don't have to keep any rules. We can do whatever we want. No, 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 no. God is a moral God. There are always rules and ethics and morals that emanate from his nature. We still have to do the right thing. Jesus spoke about ethics constantly. What he's warning against is man-made laws. He's warning against us taking God's word and launching off from it and taking it into ways that he never intended. He's warning against self-righteousness. Second, when religion is only rules, interpret them carefully. Don't add or subtract. Now, I'm gonna tell you another story from my background that I've probably shared once here. So I grew up in that kind of a church and I didn't have the personal security to walk away from it yet. So when I was 17, I graduated from high school a year early and went to college. And I went to a college much like the church I grew up in. And, and I kind of just bought the system. And I was, man, I was kind of a legalistic Christian. And, you know, I, I really had a lot of, I'd been affected by this culture, rules, so much. But eventually I went to a class called Hermeneutics 101. 
Hermeneutics is the science and art of interpretation. It was taught by Ernie Schmidt, who I have a lot of respect for. And it's, it's how to understand and interpret the Bible. And a group of us went into that class, and it so changed our views and so enlightened us that actually the college was talking about how thrilled they'd be when we all graduated and got out of there. I'm not making that up. Teachers were looking forward to getting rid of us. Because what we recognized is much of the culture that we were a part of in our movement was not biblical. And we started pushing back. And we started questioning things, which I think you're supposed to do in Bible college, question things about the Bible. We weren't like being bad kids. We're just thinking, hey, how come my church teaches this and it's not in the Bible? And so I started pushing back, and, and I went out on tour. I was on scholarship with music for three years. Would have been for four years, except because of the story I'm telling you. I began to push back, and I went out on weekends, and I stayed in a guy's house, and we were talking about wine in the New Testament, because obviously the churches we went to never allowed any alcohol. And so we were talking about that, and, and the friend I was with, I shouldn't say friend I was with, he was not a friend, sort of narked on me. That would be tattling for those who are over 40. He narked on me, and I got hauled before the administration of the college. So the big guns, like the president, the academic dean, and a couple other dudes. The four horsemen of the apocalypse. And, and they sort of drilled down on me. And I remember in that conversation, 20 years later, now that I'm 38, 20 years later, I remember from that conversation, literally them telling me how there is no way that Jesus turned water into actual wine. I mean, think of what I'm being told. I, I mean, I can interpret one of these, you know? And I, I, I'm, they're so committed to their background, and, and this is gonna sound like I never get over things and I carry grudges, which is probably a little bit true. I had to stand up before the college and make a public apology in a chapel in a Bible college for believing something that everybody in this room believes, but questioning the culture I was going to college in. And that experience shaped me. It was one of the best bad things that ever happened to me. Being accurate with God's word is job one. And by that I mean going as far as God goes and not going farther. And as soon as you decide that's not that important to you, then you're in trouble. If you don't go as far as God, it probably means you don't approve of a few things God says and you're just gonna do it kind of your way and no, God can't be that way and you're deconstructing God. If you wanna go farther than God, you're just gonna be a modern day legalist. Neither of them are okay. Our job is to get this right. No matter where it lands, you get this right. Interpret them carefully. Don't add or subtract. Remember their purpose. The rules are not there to save us. They point to God's standards. They point to our failure to meet God's standards. They can never justify us. And finally, to the outsider, offer Jesus, not the rule book. This is so important. How do you think the world around us views 
people like us, and why? Comedian Kathy Ladman expresses a view that's becoming more and more common. She says, all religions are the same. Religion is basically guilt with different holidays. That is funny. You can laugh about that, and that is funny. She's good. Religion is guilt with different holidays. Funny, cute, sad. How sad is that? It's not true. But how was Christianity presented to Kathy? Was it a set of rules? Why was the work on the cross, the atonement, forgiveness, not a better path? Why wasn't that person saying, Kathy, it's not all about the rules. We all are rule breakers. We all need Jesus. Let's not focus on how bad we are. We're all sinners. We all know that. We need Jesus. We're all sort of equal at the foot of the cross. And instead, we come across as the people who keep all the rules, and they don't. Well, I don't know about you, I don't keep all the rules. And if you think you do, you might be a lot like the people Jesus was correcting. We all need grace deeply in our lives. She was given the rule book. To many, that's all that is. And it's kind of our fault. But it's meant to be the way. It's meant to be the end of the search. It's meant to be peace. It's meant to be rest for the soul. It's meant to be the end of the conflict between that person and a God who loved them enough to die for them. We bring peace with God. And people think we're just bringing the rule book. I love this story. It's actually quite sad. But on March 10th, 1974, Lieutenant Hirao Onoda 1974, it's the last World War II Japanese soldier to surrender. 1974. Onada had been left on the island Lubang in the Philippines in 1944 on Christmas with the command to carry on the mission even if Japan surrenders. Four other Japanese soldiers were left on the island as Japan evacuated Lubang. One soldier surrendered in 1950. Another was killed in a skirmish with police. Another was killed in 1972. This man, Onada, continued his war alone. All efforts to convince him to surrender or to capture him failed. He ignored messages from loudspeakers announcing Japan's surrender and that Japan was now an ally of the United States. Leaflets were dropped over the jungle begging him to surrender so he could return to Japan. He refused to believe or surrender. Over the years, he lived off the land. He raided fields and gardens. He was responsible for killing at least 30 nationals during his 29-year personal war after the war was over. Almost a half a million dollars was spent trying to locate and convince him to surrender. 13,000 men were used to try to locate him. He was a good soldier. 13,000 people can't find you. Finally, on March 10, 1974, almost 30 years after the war was over, he surrendered his rusty sword after receiving a personal command from his former superior officer. They finally found him, got him out there who read the terms of the ceasefire order. Onada handed his sword to President Marcos at the time who pardoned him. The war was over. He was 22 when he was left on that island. He returned at 52 and prematurely aged, of course. Man, he was faithful to a flawed concept. The war was over. There are so many people in our world around us who are faithful to a flawed concept. 
and they just keep fighting a fight they can never win. They're just believing they can make it, they can do it on their own, no matter what, they've got the wrong thinking in their heads, and they don't know that the war is over, peace is possible, Jesus paid the price, and they just won't come in. They're faithful to a works view of salvation. They're just like Hirao, just toiling and toiling and toiling, not knowing. It's over, man. It's over. There's peace. It's a lonely, brutal, never enough kind of war. And we have the answer. Are we giving them Jesus or the rule book? God, we thank you for your word. And I thank you for the fact that the gospel that we have is good news. And, and I understand how confusing it is for much of the world around us because we do have a moral code. We have our Ten Commandments and we have hundreds of other things you say that are ethical in nature. And because of that, when people look at this book, it looks like a, a book of do's and don'ts and somehow they miss Jesus because of that. They miss the central theme of the book that you came to rescue us because we can't keep the rule book. And instead, so many see just the rules and think somehow if they work hard enough, if they toil long enough, it will be enough. And it won't be. I pray that you would help us to give people your grace, the good news about Jesus. And when people see in us the rule book, that they would just understand that we also recognize we're rule breakers, that we all need Jesus. Help us to reflect that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon. We hope you found it connected you to the God of truth and love who we worship and serve at Bethany Chapel. If you have any questions or want to connect to any of our pastors, please go to our Bethany Chapel app and choose Connect or go online to bethanychapel.com and click Come. Thanks again and God bless you.